Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Everybody, welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick Vinzant. Coming up in this episode, we're going to talk about viruses and the worst minor injuries. It can transmit efficiently between people in the right circumstances, and it can also cause disease in some of those people. And it's very rare that you find a virus like this particular virus that can do both of those things very well. And so that's when it becomes really dangerous. I'm very worried that in the fall, uh, as people start getting sick from cold and flu season, normal uh, normal influenza-like uh, illness, we're going to see this get even worse. So the, the politicization um, and the, the steering away from evidence-driven public health policy has been tremendously damaging. I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. Our topic today is an important one. We all know the impact that COVID-19 has had, and it doesn't look like it's going anywhere in the near future. So we wanted to have a guest on that could really give us, from a scientific perspective, what this virus really is, what it does, and what the future is going to look like. Because there's just so much, either on purpose or by accident, misinformation and misconceptions that are out there. And I think that she just does a fantastic job in this interview of clearing that up and focusing on what's really important and what we, what we really need to do to stop this. This is virologist Dr. Angela Rasmussen. From simply like a virus standpoint, what's different about COVID-19? Like why this virus? Why now? So this virus is, um, it, we know about this virus family. It's not that different from other coronaviruses. It's most closely uh, related and most similar to SARS coronavirus classic that caused a major epidemic in 2003, but it is a different virus. So it's not a completely new virus in the sense that we already knew that coronaviruses existed. We already knew that beta coronaviruses, which this is a subset of those coronaviruses, um, can cause disease, including severe respiratory disease like COVID-19 in people. Um, But this virus itself is a member of that family that we had never met before December of 2019. Was it just any new virus is going to do something like this or could potentially Or was there something specific about how it operates that allowed it to have the impact that it has? Well, so there's a a couple things, and that's a more complicated question than it seems like on the surface. So in theory, um, any type of virus that uh, infects animals could conceivably um, adapt to infect humans. The vast majority of them, however, do not. Um, Most viruses are adapted to replicate within the host that they normally circulate in. So um, it's important to understand when talking about viruses that viruses can't replicate on their own. They're obligate parasites, so they have to infect a host. And if a virus has been circulating in a specific type of host, so for example, for this virus, bats, um, it adapts to those bats to those bats and it becomes very efficient at infecting and replicating and transmitting to other bats. What can happen when ecosystems are disrupted is if this virus gets uh, to encounter a new type of host that it can infect, um, then it has the potential to either uh, infect and transmit efficiently between those hosts. Um, It also has the potential to cause disease uh, in those hosts. And it's very rare that you find a virus like this particular virus that can do both of those things very well. So 
this virus, um, and we don't really understand what led it to become adapted to, to transmitting efficiently between people, but it has the effect that it can it can transmit efficiently between people in the right circumstances, and it can also cause disease in some of those people. And because it can transmit so efficiently, and because it started spreading around the world before we were really able to recognize and contain it, um, that's why this virus has become a pandemic when many other emerging viruses have not. But there are a lot of different emerging viruses that have come out that have become human pathogens. Um, one example of this is Ebola virus, which emerges periodically um, and most recently emerged uh, in a place it had never been before in West Africa, for example. MERS coronavirus and SARS coronavirus classic were both new coronaviruses to us um, when they emerged uh, in the Middle East for MERS and in China for SARS coronavirus classic. So it's not unheard of for these viruses to emerge and cause disease in the human population. It is, un it is much more unusual for one to be as transmissible as this virus is and also cause uh, severe disease in such a large population. Can I dumb this down a little bit for me? It's kind of like an athlete with size and speed. I oh. think that's it. That's a that's a great way to put it. Um, and this is more like um, this is like the type of athlete who might play multiple positions, for example. Um, so they're they're uniquely adapted to be effective on both sides of the ball. If you're thinking about like a football player, it has both that transmissibility feature. Um, you could think of that, I guess, as speed. Um, and it has the ability to cause disease, which you could think of, I guess, as size. In terms of how much we know about this virus right now, one, we know absolutely nothing. Like, we don't even have a name. Ten, we've got this thing completely figured out. Where do you think that we are right now? I'd say we're probably about four. Um, we do have a name. This virus is called SARS coronavirus 2. We do actually have its full genetic sequence. That was the first um, pieces of data that actually came out in early January. Uh, so that's how we know that this virus is so closely related to SARS coronavirus classic, which is why it is called SARS coronavirus 2. Um, we know what it uses as a receptor, which is essentially uh, like a, a lock that it unlocks to get into the cells that it's infecting. That's a key thing that viruses have to do. We know that it uses a molecule called ACE2, which is the same as SARS classic, uh, to get into cells and replicate we know about a few of the things that it does once it gets inside those cells, uh, both to facilitate its own replication and to um, mute immune responses that the, the host will raise against it. And we're starting to learn a few things about the types of immune responses long term that it generates. But other than that, there's still many, many questions about this virus and how it works. Um, and people are probably going to be studying it for years to come after this pandemic is over. Is that number of like a four on the scale of knowledge, is that unusual for this amount of time that has passed or is that about par for the course? No, that's actually really good um, for the amount of time that's passed. So even though it feels like during pandemic time that, that you know, this these months have just dragged by for some people, um, you know, being stuck at home and our lives have changed so drastically, it feels like a long time that this virus has been with us. But actually, um, the data is coming out faster um, than any any emerging virus outbreak I've been involved with before. Um, I should I should add that when I mentioned the genetic sequence for this virus was released on January 10th, you know, really only less than two weeks after the whole world started hearing that there was this new virus circulating in China. By contrast, the first uh, genetic sequence from the 2014 to 2016 Ebola virus outbreak in West Africa took six months to be published. So um, we are really learning about this virus at an unprecedented pace. Um, if we did not have the technology and the sort of connectedness that we have globally now, we'd probably be a lot further behind where we are now in terms of what we actually know about this virus. If we can kind of address some misconceptions or popular things that are out there really quick. Masks. Yes, no. Yes. Um, masks are definitely important. We don't have a lot of good evidence about how well they work in terms of being able to assign numbers to it. 
but it's starting to become increasingly clear that they do. Um, and just, you know, out of precautionary, uh, the precautionary principle, I think people should be wearing masks in public at, at any time, just because there is enough evidence that does suggest they can reduce risk by some amount of exposure. Um, so masks are a definite yes for me. I think that everybody should be wearing masks. Everybody should be getting comfortable with them, unless, of course, you have some medical condition that counterindicates them. But very few people actually do. Most people can wear a mask safely. Um, and so I encourage everybody to get comfortable wearing a mask because I feel like we're probably going to be doing it for, for many months to come. Herd immunity. Is that a possibility? Herd immunity is definitely a possibility with the vaccine. Um, I don't think that herd immunity is feasible with natural herd immunity, which, first of all, isn't really a thing that that people have ever really thought about. Herd immunity is a term that was developed to describe what happens when a sufficient amount of the population is vaccinated against a virus. Um, So, yes, herd immunity is definitely possible with vaccination. Uh, once we have some safe and effective vaccines that are available. Um, herd immunity is probably not possible by having the entire inf- the entire population get infected or, you know, for anywhere from 50 to 80 percent of the population get infected for a couple reasons. We don't really know how good um, long-term protective immunity is from a natural infection, and there are some indications that it may wane. Uh, after a certain period of time. We just really don't know enough about it. But second is really an ethics issue. If if 60% of the population, say, of the U.S., or let's just even say 50% of the population, the U.S. population is about 350-plus million. So half of that is, what, 175 million people. If this only has a 1% case fatality rate, which it, it looks like it's hovering somewhere around there, you know, those are still millions of deaths that we would see just in the U.S. alone if that many people were to get infected with this virus. We also don't know about the long-term consequences of being infected uh, with this virus and, and recovering from it. There have been reports of some people who've recovered who are having persistent problems. Um, they may have lung injuries or reduced lung capacity. They may have neurological issues. Um, there are a lot of things we don't know about this virus. So herd immunity, definitely a possibility with a vaccine. I think it's completely unsafe and possibly not uh, not really something we can achieve with natural infection. You know, for kind of just the average person, like what should I really be paying attention to? Because there's so much noise around everything and what you hear one day isn't what you hear the next day. What, what should I really be like, oh, okay, you should look at this and you should pay attention to this? Yeah, so this is one thing that has been incredibly difficult to communicate uh, with the public about, and that is just that science scientists have been dealing with this pandemic from day one, knowing the same amount that the general public knows about this virus, which is not much. Um, and so a lot of the, the recommendations have changed over time as we've gotten new evidence uh, to support them. Um, masks are a great example, actually. At the beginning of this pandemic, there was not a lot of evidence about how mask usage could help reduce transmission at population level. And as I mentioned, there's still not a ton of evidence, but there is some that masks can help. So the mask guidance has changed for that reason to go from maybe you can wear a mask if you want to um, definitely you should be wearing a mask in public, even if it's not an N95 particulate respirator. Um, that's one great example. I think what people should be paying attention to is really uh, the, the, the long-term eyes-on-the-prize kind of perspective. We need to have a vaccine uh, as soon as possible because that is the thing that is going to end all of the stay-home uh, recommendations that we've been dealing with. And I know it's very difficult because it's summertime. Nobody wants to be stuck at home for months at a time. And many people can't because of the economy. But the guidance really hasn't changed as far as that goes since March or April. And that is that by staying home, by minimizing exposure risk, uh, you can keep yourself and your family safe until a vaccine is available. Um, so pay attention to the vaccine studies. That will give people an idea, I think, of when we might have a vaccine. And just yesterday, you know, some encouraging phase one clinical trial data came out about the Moderna vaccine. 
um, that suggests that, you know, it's safe and it, and it can advance to the next stage of clinical trials, which is great news. So I'd encourage people to not get so hung up on, you know, changing guidance. Um, the things that they can do individually to protect themselves are the same. So avoid crowds. Uh, don't go out except for essential errands. Um, physical distancing. Wear a mask in public. Practice good hand hygiene. And uh, just really um, encourage your neighbors to also do so. We've seen what happens when states reopen too quickly. That's what's going on right now in these hotspot states like Texas and Arizona and Florida. We want to avoid that. So people should just as much as possible take as many measures as they can to reduce their own risk and the risk to their families um, going forward until we do have a vaccine. Do you think that the worst is behind us? We're in it or is it ahead of us? I think it might be ahead of us, Um, and that's really unfortunate. But uh, in the U.S., anyways, our our national leadership has really failed um, to communicate this. And and frankly, the politicization of this pandemic has really undermined trust um, between the public and the public health officials who are making these evidence-based recommendations to people. Um, If if people are already not inclined to believe the experts um, and not just virologists like myself, but also epidemiologists, physicians, public health policymakers, et cetera, it's going to be very difficult to to stop, to flatten the curve again. Um, People have already shown that they don't have much of an appetite for more lockdowns. And even in these states where cases, hospitalizations, and now deaths are beginning to surge, um, people are still very skeptical of the need to, to take these precautions. So I don't see us uh, making a concerted effort the way that we all did in March and April to stay home and flatten the curve enough to get these outbreaks that are going on under control. And we're coming up on flu season um, in the fall when influenza also begins circulating. Hopefully people will get their flu shots, but we may run into a situation where people are at risk of getting either influenza or COVID. Um, And that is a a pretty frightening prospect because the really damaging stuff that's happening in these hotspot states isn't necessarily just that all these people are getting COVID. It's that the hospital systems do not have the capacity to care for all of them. And so that's when it becomes really dangerous. I'm very worried that in the fall, uh, as people start getting sick from cold and flu season, normal uh, normal influenza-like uh, illness, we're going to see this get even worse. When this kind of all started, when it really got the public's attention, we talked to a pandemic historian. And one of the things that he said was, whenever you're talking about any kind of pandemics, any kind of a public health issue, eventually society makes the decision how many deaths they are willing to accept. Do you think that that's ultimately what we're going to decide in this case? Well, that's an interesting perspective because at the beginning of this pandemic, when the University College London model came out, or sorry, the Imperial College uh, model came out, which suggested that without any of these precautions in the U.S., we could have as many as 2.2 million deaths. Fortunately, that hasn't happened um, yet. But, uh, you know, we're at a much lower level than that. And we decided at that point that that was an absolutely unacceptable number of deaths. Um, It seems that, at least in terms of federal political leadership, that has sort of changed, maybe. And uh, and it it appears they might now be willing to accept more deaths than the 130,000-plus deaths that we've had in the U.S., so I think that is unfortunately uh, a correct observation, and I'm just, con- you know, I'm very concerned and disappointed with our current leadership that that, that number is something that keeps getting bigger, and it, it seems that it's becoming more and more acceptable for more people to die. It's definitely an interesting thing about humanity, how if you set the bar really high and you say 2.2 million, then suddenly mentally we become okay with like 300,000. And then if, you know, and then if it inches up, we just kind of stop paying attention. I hope that we don't stop paying attention. I think that, and I've read that that is part of the the federal strategy at this point for dealing with this is just basically that people are going to get used to others dying in their communities. And I just refuse to believe that we as a society, 
are okay with that. Um, granted, there is evidence that certain, you know, certain groups of people, um, we've already seen how this has disproportionately affected black and brown people, um, that those numbers might be more acceptable for some people, uh, people who are not uh, racial minorities. Um, I think that it's, it's really difficult and ethically fraught when you get into deciding who is okay, who am I okay with dying, and who am I not okay with dying? I think that it's it's not acceptable to have any preventable deaths. And that's, that's the attitude that we need to have as a society. That's certainly my attitude. Um, I really hope that, that people do not become so cynical and inured to this pandemic that they become okay with, you know, 300,000, 400,000, 500,000 deaths. If you were to look at it, from a scientific standpoint, when we talk about how we responded to it as a country, what was the biggest mistake that we made? I think that the biggest mistake we've made um, really is is allowing this virus to become politicized. I don't want to point to any one specific thing. Um, from the beginning, though, this virus has been politicized. When we decided to issue a travel ban against China, um, but not all people from China. It was just foreign nationals coming from China, but anybody who's American could just come right in. Um, that's not an effective way to do a travel ban if you're trying to prevent cases from being imported into the U.S. Um, and that's a that's a good example. A virus doesn't care what passport you're carrying. A virus doesn't care which country you're in, you're a citizen of. Um, by letting anybody in from places where there were, was uncontrolled community transmission and not requiring them to undergo any kind of quarantine or monitoring. Um, that's not an effective travel ban. And sure enough, we imported a lot of cases. We also imported a number of cases from Europe. Um, and those are also circulating, we know now. Um, the, the coronavirus task force uh, had those daily press conferences for a long time in which misinformation was being just basically spread outright. Uh, people were taking hydroxychloroquine because the president said that he liked the idea of the drug um, without any evidence that it actually works and it doesn't appear to work, at least not very well. Um, people ingested bleach when the president was musing about whether or not uh, disinfectant could somehow be used as a treatment for COVID-19. So we've seen all of these different situations in which political uh, concerns have driven public health guidance, and that has been incredibly harmful. Uh, we're seeing it. We're still seeing it now. And as of yesterday, the CDC is no longer tracking data on hospitalizations. That's going to be tracked directly at the White House. That's going to further muddy the water and our own understanding of communities that are at risk in the U.S., so the, the politicization um, and the, the steering away from evidence-driven public health policy has been tremendously damaging. Why, aren't, why doesn't it affect kids? That's an excellent question that we don't know the answer to. Um, it does seem that there, for many coronaviruses, including SARS Classic and MERS, uh, there is an age dependency where older people are more likely to get severe disease, but the bottom line is we don't really know the basis of that. We do know, however, that children are not immune. They're not resistant. Uh, they can be infected with this virus, and in rare cases, they can get very sick, um, and in some cases, they can die. So children aren't completely off the hook, um, but yes, it, it, we don't really know what the basis is for their seemingly having less severe disease than older people. I don't, I'm not sure if this is a word, but in the broader virological, is that a word? It Vi is a word. It is a word. Okay. In, in a broader biological sense, like when you study a virus, what are you, what are you studying? So when you're a virologist like me, you can study a lot of different aspects of a virus. Um, but the, the broader definition of a virologist is just somebody who studies viruses um, some people study entry, so they study how viruses get into cells. Some people study replication, which is the study of how those viruses uh, copy their genomes, which they need to do to make new viruses. Some people study the immune response to those viruses. Um, some people study broader host responses to the virus, which is what I study. 
Um, so all these different aspects, um, some people are very, very mechanical about it and they study the viruses almost as though they're little machines and they're thinking about all the different, the different parts of the virus, like a car, for example, like you can sort of take it, take it apart and try to figure out how it works. Um, and as I mentioned before, all viruses need to have a host. So sometimes some of us study, uh, the interaction with that host and how those different parts of the virus work with different kinds of hosts. So that's what I study, and I study um, how really the, the virus and the host interact with each other. Are viruses in general, but are they trying to kill us, or what are they trying to do? So viruses aren't trying to do anything because they um, are not sentient, so they don't have desires, they don't have motivation, um, they are really machines more than anything. They're little biological machines that are evolutionarily driven to replicate themselves. And that is, you know, sort of every biological entity's fundamental, uh, fundamental motivating drive, um, is really to, to propagate your species. Um, so that's really what viruses have evolved to do is, basically make more viruses um, and make them more efficiently. So no, viruses um, aren't really trying to cause disease. And it's thought that over long evolutionary periods of time, when they are adapting really well to a, a certain host, um, that they that they do become what we call attenuated, meaning they, they cause less disease. Um, sometimes they cause no disease. And uh, that's why one, one of the reasons why we think that oftentimes bats, um, which carry coronaviruses in nature, uh, don't, get, don't get very sick, although we still don't know much about that. But it's probably because those viruses are very well adapted to their hosts, so they can replicate efficiently in them. They can make lots of new viruses and transmit to new hosts, but they don't trigger the bats' immune systems and they don't cause severe disease. Um, so oftentimes we think that that's also why when a, a new virus comes into a new population, like, for example, a bat coronavirus getting into humans, um, it might cause more severe disease because the, the virus is not adapted to the human host. And so it's triggering responses that themselves can be harmful. And, uh, and then you end up with COVID-19. Um, but there's still, this is still a very active area of research and there's a lot of gaps in our knowledge there. I hope this question makes sense the way I'm about to phrase it, because I feel like I'm going to phrase it horribly. But when we get infected, like, are we just getting one virus or do a bunch of the viruses of the same kind kind of accumulate and then they all attack us at once? Or how does that how does that work? Well, that's a really great question. And in fact, it's one that's really um, at the basis of sort of some of the guidance that people need to take to reduce their exposure risk. So in theory, um, or actually in a plate of cells in the lab, you can take one infectious virus particle and establish an infection. But in reality, um, you need a lot more. And part of the reason for that is if you just think of this virus in the way that it's transmitted, you have to get it into your nose. Um, and there are a lot of barriers that are in your nose. Your nose has a distinct physiological shape. It's not just a you know, a single tube. It's a complex uh, network of nostrils and, and nasal passages and, uh, and then your airway. And um, there's nose hairs, there's mucus, there are all these barriers to a virus getting in and finding its receptor, getting into a cell, getting around the sort of innate alarm systems that are there to protect against viral infection and to finally establish an infection. So it probably takes, and this is really more of a question of probability, um, it probably takes a lot of infectious virus particles to get past all those barriers and establish an infection in which it can then start making more viruses. The problem is we don't actually know what that number is that you really need to, to get past all those barriers. We would call that the minimum infectious dose. Um, we don't know what that dose is, but it's almost certainly more than a single viral particle. Do you have a few minutes for some listener-submitted questions? Sure. What do you hate more, Facebook or Twitter at the moment? Oh, Facebook. I, I don't even really go on to Facebook anymore. Um, I find Twitter to be much more useful in terms of following experts um, and in terms of being able to avoid some of the more harmful uh, misinformation and disinformation sources. 
Um, also, all of my uh, racist relatives are on Facebook and they're not on Twitter, so I prefer Twitter. You really can't avoid the relatives a lot easier on Twitter, I feel like, right? Yeah, absolutely. With all of the sanitizing that's going on right now, are we risking creating more resistant antibacteria? Um, no. So as long as you're sanitizing with uh, household disinfectants and hand sanitizer that's alcohol-based, there's nothing in there that is an antibiotic. You're not going to be creating new antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Um if you do, if you are using hand sanitizer that's based on an antibiotic, for example, triclosan, uh, you shouldn't be using that because, first of all, those are un- those are ineffective against viruses. But second of all, they can um, promote antibiotic resistance in the bacteria that are around us. Worst or wait, oh sorry, best movie about a viral outbreak. That's a hard one because there are most of them all have their problems. I guess Contagion's probably the, the most scientifically accurate. Um, Outbreak certainly is not. I Am Legend certainly is not. Anything with zombies really is not. <laughs> um, I would say probably Contagion's the most scientifically accurate, but all of, all of those virus outbreak movies have problems because that's not really um, the timescale, how you know, in which pandemic spread, as you can see, even for this virus, it's, it's taking place over months. Um, the 1918 flu pandemic took place over years. Uh, so a lot of times that they're sort of accelerated, they also really oversimplify how the um, policymaking process works and how organizations like the CDC work or the NIH. Um, but yeah, probably Contagion is the most scientifically accurate. From a scientific standpoint, what what's the most interesting virus? Well, I'm partial to Ebola because I've studied it a lot. And Ebola was, it's kind of a virologist cliche, um, but I read The Hot Zone when I was like in high school and I thought it was really neat. And that's kind of how I got interested in viruses. So I guess Ebola is always going to be kind of my favorite, but um I mean, all viruses are very interesting. They're all very different from each other. And even viruses within the same family, like coronaviruses, they all are just a little bit different enough that individually they're fascinating to work on. So I certainly, um, not to knock SARS coronavirus too, because, you know, trying to figure out the, the mysteries of this virus as a scientist has been one of the more rewarding aspects of this pandemic um, in a pandemic where, you know, the vast majority of the news is not good. And I'm pretty pessimistic in general about how it's going. Um, but it has been very interesting to, to study this virus and kind of learn about it in real time. Can answer this one or, or, or not. This one just says, are we this dumb? Yes. <laughs> I'll, I'll just leave it at that. But uh, evidence suggests yes. I, it's so bad, though. Like, you would think that we're n- But, okay, is it people or is it a person who is that dumb? And I don't mean that in any kind of political sense. But, like, is it just the nature of us as people that, yes, any kind of herd thing is this dumb? Or are we personally this dumb? No, I think it, I think it's, it's like a herd thing. It's like a population-level um, stupidity. And I think it's just because, um, you know, the, the discourse is going to be dominated often by the lowest common denominator. Um, and unfortunately, uh, the, the voices that are kind of spreading that lowest common denominator around are very loud and they have some very enthusiastic supporters. And I think collectively as a society, you know, we haven't really learned, we haven't really learned our lesson ever. And that's why, you know, there's that old adage that, you know, history repeats itself about history repeating itself. I think that this this happens over and over again. And our technology is much better, obviously, than in 1918. Um, our you know our circumstances as a as a global civilization, I think, are much different. But we are making some of the same mistakes, and uh, some of that I think is human nature, and some of it is just the fact that we have not learned how to apply the lessons of the past to our reality today. I'll end on this one. Do you have any good news? 
Yeah, I mean, the vaccine um, from Moderna seems to induce potent antibody responses, so that's good news. It's advancing in clinical trials, and uh, the clinical trial for the Oxford vaccine, which I think is being manufactured by AstraZeneca, are, are starting to wrap up, and they might even be wrapped up by the end of the summer, meaning we'll have a vaccine probably sooner than later, which is excellent news. Um, it's still not immediately good news, but uh, it's it's very encouraging news at the very least. I want to thank Dr. Rasmussen so much for joining us. If you want to connect with her, we have linked to her on our social media accounts. We're profoundly pointless on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And she is a fantastic resource on Twitter for unbiased, non-political, scientific information about what is really happening with this virus and what you need to do. We've also included links to her in the RSS feed that's on this podcast. Okay. Now let's go ahead and give John Shull a call. Hello? If you want to appear cool to somebody you just met, what are you going to do? Probably pretend to be be not me. <laughs> yeah, that would probably be the best course of action, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I would probably try to ask that person as many questions as possible and hope that they do not give a shit about me at all. And, uh, you know, by the time we're nine or ten drinks in, it, you know, who gives a shit at that point anyways? Yeah. it's it's <laughs> you, you have a hard line, right? Because if somebody started asking you questions when they're sober, they'd probably think you were an idiot. Like, oh, my God, this guy's a moron. But <laughs> if they get a couple of drinks in and they get to know you, then that same quality really works for you. You've got – okay, you've got like a three to six beer – in between three and six drinks, that's your weak spot. That's where you're really gonna make. That's where you're gonna make or break yourself. For sure. <laughs> I don't. I don't think. I think when you say most people put up a guard when they first meet somebody, anyways, like they try to be somebody they're not for the most part. To be, you know, to fill them out or to see where the conversation is gonna go. I think you you try to be the best version of yourself, right? Hmm. I kind of pick up people's other people's personality a little bit when I talk to them and mirror their body language a little bit on accident. So, I mean, I, that's <laughs> Not why because I because you're an asshole or anything. No, I mean, that's it's, maybe it makes a slightly better impression. Like, okay, so for people who have never met John and I, John is the guy that you would grow to like and I'm the guy that you would grow to dislike. <laughs> is that a fair assessment? I mean, I don't think you're a terrible person, but yes, if, if it's a one night situation, uh, yes, I, I, I think we reverse. I think up front, people would like you a lot better, but I, you know, as the night goes on, it's probably a little bit real reversal because nobody wants to get arrested with you, Nick. No one wants to get into the shenanigans you always get people into when they're with you. Not my fault. You can say no. <laughs> That's true. We're all adults. All right, are you ready? What's your stuff? Let's hear it. Let's do it, man. All right, let's give some shout-outs as soon as I can get my friggin' thing to load. All right, there we go. Uh, all right, well, big shout-outs big shout outs this week. Thanks to everyone that checked us out, Instagram, Twitter, um, Facebook, all that good stuff. Let's start with Big Nick, uh, at the Big Nick J. Appreciate you. Uh, Jeff Wait Wendell. a minute. Is his name actually Big Nick, or are you just calling him Big Nick? No, his, his handle is uh, Big Nick. Did you, is there anything in his sandal that might dictate how big of a guy he really is? Is it like, is it ironic, Big Nick? Like he's really like 5'1", 110? Or does he look like a big guy? Uh, he looked average to me, if I recall his little icon. Why has he got to be a little icon? Anyways, can, can, I, can I continue? I just want some perspective. I, I he, he looked like an average size person according to the the icon picture that he had on his on his twitter account okay is it just his face or is it whole his whole body it's like his his face leading to like part of his chest like a like a headshot okay <laughs> is that it yeah i just wanted a little clarification on if big nick was actually a big guy unlike you who is five foot four Anyways. five eight and three quarters baby down from All 190 right. uh, to 181 pounds uh, so Jeff, Wendell, Charles, Henry, Logan Boggs, appreciate y'all. Uh, Alan Sandoval, Karen, Ahmad, 
Jamie, and Garrett. You get the special shout-outs this week. So, and apparently, uh, the big Big Nick gets the the twenty second shout-out. So, so good for him. Uh, let's see. So, I'm pretty excited for a top five, which I know you don't want to get to just yet. But my questions to you are kind of kind of in, in, in that thought. So, let's start with. Uh, so basically, you're going to ruin the top five before we get to it. I'm not going to ruin it. I'm going to preview it because maybe people will want to <sighs> stick around because they're excited for it. Or just skip ahead 10 minutes. Okay. Um, you, you, you get hurt. Yeah, you know, like yeah, a, yeah, 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 See, well, that's, that's not necessary. That, that really isn't necessary. That doesn't make me want to talk anymore. No, dude, I was just going into a rap verse, bro. Like that, 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 that's not good. All right, I'm that's sorry. That's not nice to pick on people with speech impediments, Nick. You done? <laughs> I'm, I, I'm not done. Nope, nope. What are you going to say next, then? Nothing. I think we should just move into our top five scenes. No, I want to hear it. I'm fine. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I made fun of you rapping. All right, fine. We'll take it. (laughs) Only because I don't feel like sitting here listening to you try to apologize when you don't mean it. Um, I don't. All right, so you get a scrape or a burn or a cut. Are you a Band-Aid or no Band-Aid kind of guy? Um, it depends a little bit on the location, to be honest with you. If it's in a location where it's going to rub, like if you're talking about that space on the back of your heel where your shoes kind of dig in, you're talking about hands, I'm I'm going to go with a Band-Aid just to kind of offer some extra protection. Otherwise, I'm just going to kind of leave it out there as a as a badge of honor and kind of slowly try to get my wife to notice that I've been hurt. What's what's uh, what kind of band aid you going with? Like you have actual band aids, or you going with like the kid kid kind of band aids? A uh, duct tape <laughs> or duct tape, sure. Because no. everybody uses duct tape as band aids. Well, when you first started out, I thought it was a dumb question, and I was getting angry. But then you kind of saved it with the kids band aid, and then I, I was already stuck. I had already committed to being a smartass, and I couldn't really back out of it. But no, I mean I use regular band aids. I, I can tell you haven't had a, a lot of people, a lot of human interaction the last week. Uh, let's see here. Um, broken toe, finger, or nose? Which one do you want? Or would, if you had to pick one, which one would you pick? Well, broken toe. I mean, I think you can... Okay, so my dad retired recently, but he used to be a family physician. You can basically break your toes and not even know it. <laughs> so I would definitely... I mean, broken toe... Depends which finger it is. Like, if it's my pinky, I'm not too worried. Actually, pinky probably catch on a lot of stuff. I mean, broken nose doesn't actually sound that bad. Have you? Which one of those have you actually had? I've had every one of those. Did somebody punch you in the face? Uh, no, I, I got hit. I've had three broken noses. Uh, two of them were because I got uh, I got hit in the face by a baseball. Why didn't you catch it? <laughs> I did. I caught it with my face. <laughs> That's not how you're supposed to do it. Uh, no. And now, now I have to tell the story, so you should stop listening for a minute. Uh, but probably the grossest broken anything I've ever had was my pinky and ring finger playing football. I got my hand stuck in another kid's helmet, and he turned his head, and it basically just took my fingers with it. And when I finally got my hand freed from his helmet... My pinky and my ring finger were like, I don't know, like the other way on my hand. It was disgusting. Which one were you more concerned about at the time, the pinky or the ring finger? <laughs> Neither. I was like, I didn't even know. Like, I, I didn't even know what to do. I just, I, I ran over to the sideline. There's video of this. And I'm just holding my hand up, waiting for someone to come take a look at it. <laughs> and finally, somebody did. Can you post that video, please? Uh, if, if someone knows how to, or, or has a converter and can take VHS to, uh, you know, uh, some kind of file I can post, I'd love to do it. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's an iPhone and you play it and then you hold your phone up next to it and then just videotape it. I, that's, uh, that makes sense. <laughs> you had nothing. Like, I got nothing. I, I, I could do that. You're absolutely correct. <laughs> what, whatever. I'm. I, I'm uh, I'm done here. My my other thing wasn't really a question. It's just, have you ever been put in a cast before? Have you ever had something casted? Uh, yes. One, 
three things. <laughs> well, all three of them what, what, were my penis after we and with your mom. Oh boy. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, I really was just going to ask you if you've ever, uh, you know, uh, tried to shower with a cast on and how fucking annoying it is. But I can tell this is going to turn into some kind of sexual thing uh, against my mother. So I'm just going to stop. Here's a quick question, though. If you broke your equipment, would you tell people? Would you be, like, proud of that? Or would you keep it a secret? <laughs> I mean, it's probably not the first thing I'd bring up in conversation. But I, I, I mean, I probably would tell people, I think, as long as it got put back together. Okay, so pretend like you're at a function or whatever with people that you kind of know, and somehow Ricky, who all play the role of Ricky, is like, hey guys, have you ever broken anything? And this would have been the only thing that you've ever broken. What are you going to say when Ricky looks at you? Uh, well, it, it would depend on how many drinks I have, but if if, I, if I've had enough to where I don't give a shit, I'd probably just say, Guys, ever break your penis? Because I have. Yeah, that's probably the. Hmm. Okay, what breaking what results in the most follow up questions? Because it's probably that, or I, I would say your back or your neck, right? Like people would be like, "You did what? Maybe cracked your skull." Those are the top ones that I could think of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely that's for sure. Number, one. I mean. And how the fuck does that happen? Like, I mean, we know how it happens, but it's just like, how does it happen? Um, what if it was I lame my, and you just like got it caught in the door? Like you just turned weird as the door was shutting and you were walking out and just smashed it. Oh my God. <laughs> well, then you got uh, a gigantic pecker, I guess. If you're, if you got to worry about that, some of us have a, you know, the clearance doesn't, it doesn't need a whole lot of clearance to get through a doorway. So couldn't, you couldn't get your stuck underneath the door. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm quite positive I couldn't get mine stuck. Period or broken. Uh, are you ready for our top five? Let's do it. So our top five is top five, top five worst minor injuries. What's your number five? Uh, my number five is getting your finger uh, like slammed in a car door or a door or something like that. Ooh, that's a good one. I don't. The, the only my only concern was be I, uh, that might not be minor injury in my mind. Like, that can really F some stuff up. Uh, yeah, I mean, once again, I've done it. And, I mean, yeah, it, it jams your finger. I lost a fingernail because of it. But the fingernail grew back, and the finger wasn't broke. It just hurt like a bitch. And, you know, a couple of weeks later, I was fine. So I don't think they're – I think it's a minor injury for the most part. My number five is uh, breaking a nail. Like, just <laughs> breaking it and having it fold back or busting it. Ooh, that hurts. And it's awkward afterwards because you got to be like dainty with it. Or, or I like it, it kind of hangs there too. Like Ooh, it's painful. That's the worst, man. Just pull it out, you puss. No, dude. I can't do that. No. Oh, well. What's your number four? I just pull it out. It hurts for like two seconds. <laughs> um, My number four is uh, getting some kind of... Uh, Sting or bite, like a bee sting or a hornet sting. Oh, come on. Get out of here. You're going to talk about a, a little a little nail issue, but getting stung by a bee or a hornet isn't? Well, okay, so the nail thing isn't just specifically painful. It's also gross to look at. To me, it's like it's a, it's a, com, it's a compound injury of both the body and the mind. I mean, getting stung by a bee isn't the, – the, 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 honestly – the the part of me that feels the worst about getting stung by a bee is that the bee dies afterwards. Jesus, I'm not got nothing to say to that. I mean, I, sure, if you you know save the bees, unless one of them wants to fucking attack me. Well, dude, you got to take one for the team. <laughs> I've taken a few, all right, and they do not feel well. I've never been stung by anything more than a bee, though. Uh. I'd say oh. the worst sting I've ever had was a jellyfish. Okay, never mind. I have, I had a jellyfish. It wasn't that bad. I've stepped in fire ants before, and that hurt. Like, ooh, mm. that hurt. Yeah, that doesn't sound fun at all. And I was in a position where I had to try to be cool while <laughs> while hurt. You're like, uh, uh, 
<laughs> fine. I'm fine. What's your And were you cool or what? Dude, no. <laughs> Other people had to come help me. <laughs> What's your number four? Stub toe. Okay. You don't think that hurts? I mean, once again, it's kind of like, like the the toe, the the fingernail thing. Like it hurts for about ten seconds, and then unless you break your toe, it's like okay, well, that sucks. How about though when you bang that bone, your ankle bone on something like that part where it's just all bone right on the side of your ankle, and you bang it against something? Ooh, that hurts. Yeah, that does hurt. That does well. I have cankles though, so it doesn't hurt as bad for me as it does for most people. That makes sense. What's your number three? <laughs> uh, so this one is a, is a stretch, but uh, uh, having your butt get raw from diarrhea. I don't even. <laughs> I, I know it's not probably classified as an injury, but anyone, including yourself, that has had that uh, knows that that is painful and sucks for like a few days, and it doesn't get any better. Why don't you wait it out? Like you don't just sit there and wait till you think you're all done, and then clean up the thing. Are you like every individual one trying to wipe it up? Yeah. Are you talking about like? Yeah, because what if you're, what if you're, you know, having to go throughout the day? Like I'm not, I, I'm not going to sit on the toilet for nine hours. No, but I mean, like I'm not okay. Say if I'm on there and I'm going to be on it there for a fifteen minute stretch. I'm not going to go ahead and, you know, clean it up every couple of minutes. I'm going to wait until I think I'm done for that particular set and rep, how we say. <laughs> and then I'm going to go ahead and tidy up my workstation. But I'm not sure. going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to wipe down the bench between reps. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I think that's smart. I, I'm thinking more of like you take a shit at four o'clock. And then you take a shit at five o'clock and six o'clock, that that kind of thing. Not like you you have diarrhea and you're wiping. Oh, go some more wiping. I'm talking about like a prolonged pooping uh, event. Well, you got to get in there and wash it off. That's the trick, right? A bidet, baby. That's the way to go, man. You convinced me about the bidet. <laughs> did you ever install yeah. it? Yeah, I, I did. I did it myself too. I did the. Um, you know, I, I did the hot water line. I've done all kinds of stuff. Ever since that conversation, I said, you know what? Ain't no other man coming to my house to do work. I can do it. This is also the guy, remind you, that let somebody else mow his lawn. Listen, that was a, that is true, and that was a mistake. Thank you for admitting it. What's your number three? Uh, we're, on, we're on your number three. Oh, oh, biting your tongue or your cheek. Okay, so yeah, so my, uh, I, I have that on the list uh, a little bit higher, so. Okay, okay. What's your number two then? Uh, a cardboard cut. You mean a paper cut? Or does it have to be specifically cardboard? Like this is only a pain that can be provided by cardboard itself. Yeah, it specifically has to be cardboard. And I know, I know it sounds stupid or, or dumb. But I'm telling you, if you've ever had like a, like you know like you're putting together a kid's toy or whatever, you get a package from Amazon or something, and you fucking give yourself a cardboard cut, like it hurts. It hurts bad, actually. Okay, so describe. Okay, so then if a scale of one to ten, cardboard is where, and then paper cut is where. Cardboard would be like a like a, a, a six, and a paper is like a two for me. Okay, I'm looking this up real quick. I don't know how I feel about this. It's cardboard cut. Whereas a paper cut is a cut resulting from contact with the edge of a piece of paper, a cardboard cut is a cut resulting from contact with the edge of a sheet of cardboard. Well, thanks, dictionary. Everybody. <laughs> oh, one of the things is they hurt like hell. Yeah, they do hurt like hell. And then if you get them like in between your fingers... Or like Ooh. stuff or something like that. Like they hurt like a motherfucker, I'm telling you. That's a bad cut. When you get that one in like the webbing of your fingers. Ooh, that's a bad one. Yeah, it's terrible. Uh my number two is sprained ankle, man. 
That I have that on my honorable mention. Uh, yeah, sprained ankles are, are not a good thing. I don't know how that can be on your honorable mention. That's a like that's that's not only painful, but that's a day ruiner. I mean, that's like a that's like a a week ruiner for most people. Not when you got legs like mine, baby. <laughs> God, uh, my number one is uh, biting your cheek or the side of your mouth. Okay, my number one is any kind of back pain. Like okay. a back injury. That's pretty bad, right? But see, I, I would argue that, like, I don't know if that's minor then, like a back injury. Like, that, that that can be pretty severe. I'm talking about, like, a tweaked back. Like, you just wake up one day and you just wait. People who are in the, who may be listening to this, who are under the age of 30, you don't know yet. <laughs> you don't understand. You don't know yet. You don't know yet what's going to happen <laughs> to your back when you sleep wrong for five minutes at night. And the rest of your month is ruined. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, you think, you know, enjoy the guilty pleasure of life now while you can without repercussions. Tell you that. Do you think you're half half the person that you used to be physically? Just between the ages of 27 and your current age now, what percentage do you feel like you've declined from a physical standpoint in that amount of time? Oh, at least 50%. Oh, I tried to jump the other day. Like, <laughs> like I'm I'm just a big like I'm just a big guy now. Like I used to have a little bit of, of muscle and mass. Like now I'm just a big guy. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, but you know, I, I do need to give you credit on something uh, that my wife told me to give you credit on. Uh, an episode a while back, you asked me the question of how long does it take me to eat dinner. Okay. And this is before I had, before we had our second child. And I think I told you, I don't know, like, I like to enjoy my meal, like a half an hour to 45 minutes or something, Mm -hmm. whatever it was. And you were like, oh man, blah, 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 like you're an idiot. Like, I'm like under 10 and done. And I laughed at you and I'm like, there's no way, like, you know, that's bullshit. Well, now that I have two kids, a two-year-old and a three-month-old, I don't want to be at the dinner table anymore. Like, I, I seriously think I'm done in like five minutes. Oh, it's a lot more efficient, right? Oh my god, it's insane! So you were, you were, you were correct on that. You, you were, you know, I give you some props. I've always hated the word meal. It just sounds <laughs> awful to me. Meal. <laughs> Would you like a meal? I, oh, <laughs> hate that you word. Sound like George Carlin, man. <laughs> you, yeah. He used to make fun of people and how they used to say words and weak words and, you know, I don't know, meal wasn't one of them, but I think you just made it one. It is. It is. <laughs> All right, do you have anything? What's in your honorable mention? I forgot about that. So I had my sprained uh, sprained ankle. I also had, uh, I had ingrown toenails. Ooh, yeah, that's um, a good one. I had like, you know, getting older and, and you kind of hit on it, but like sleeping wrong and then you get up and like you have a nod or like you're just sore for no fucking reason just because you slept on your right arm and not your left arm. It's like a week. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty much it. I also have like when you get like pimples like on the side of your nose that are just fucking naggy and hurt like hell. But see, I've never had a, pin- uh, a painful pimple on my nose. Had them on my back before, but never on my nose. <laughs> I, listen, if I had pimples on my back, I couldn't tell you because I can't see my back. So, well, I don't think any. Think about how much dirtier your back probably is than your front. Oh man, I don't really want to think about that because that's disgusting. Yeah, it really is. I'm going to leave you with that. <laughs> you have anything on your honorable mention? Uh, not that I remember anymore. I kind of honestly forgot. Well, it wouldn't be profoundly pointless if uh, we weren't profoundly pointless, so there's that. Yeah, I can't – I thought I had some, but I don't remember what they are. So nothing really that good then, I don't think. And kids, that's what drugs will do to you. Yeah. They're fun, though. <laughs> okay, that's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of Profoundly Pointless. I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. We also really love getting comments from you guys because without fail, every time we do one of these top five lists and I feel like I've just crushed John and made him feel like less of a man because my list is just so much better than his, 
somebody else immediately has a comment that just makes us look stupid because we completely overlooked it. Like a couple episodes ago, we did things it's impossible to look cool while doing and someone suggested wearing a helmet. You can't look cool wearing a helmet unless you're on a motorcycle. And we completely missed that. So we love hearing those comments from you guys. Appreciate it. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.